2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today's episode is part of the Best Of series, where we highlight some of the most exciting and enthralling and enlightening episodes from the archives of the Psychology
3: Podcast. Enjoy. That is what consciousness is about. It's about creating the, the not disputable fact that I am doing my perceptions and you are doing your perceptions. And the, and the two channels of operation, uh, and then the two kinds of operation are of the same type, but they are occurring in different organisms.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome Dr. Antonio Damasio. Dr. Damasio is an internationally recognized neuroscientist whose extensive research has shaped the understanding of neural systems and consciousness. With over 100 journal articles and book chapters, he has earned many prestigious awards throughout his career. Currently, he serves as university professor, the David Dornseif Professor of Neuroscience, Psychology, and Philosophy, and Director of the Brain Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. His books, descartes Error, Looking for Spinoza, Self Comes to Mind, The Strange Order of Things, and Feeling and Knowing, have been published in translation and are taught in universities throughout the world. In this stimulating episode, I talked to Antonio Damasio about consciousness. People often think that the mind and consciousness are the same thing, but Dr. Damasio disputes this notion. He argues that it's the complex relationship of both our brains and bodies that makes sentient thought possible. Homeostatic feelings like hunger and pain developed before emotions, and along with it came consciousness. We also touch on the topics of perception, mental illness, evolution, panpsychism, AI, and machine learning. So it's with great enthusiasm that I now bring you Dr. Antonio Damasio. It's nice to finally meet you. We have uh, some mutual friends in common. I, I'm dear friends with uh, Mary Helen and Mardino Yang. Oh, great. Highly, very highly of you. And it's just, yeah, yeah
3: it's nice, she, nice to finally meet she's, you. She's, um, she's having a beautiful career. Yeah, she was, she was um, I think, the first person we appointed to the... Brand Creativity Institute. Now, I think seventeen years ago.
1: <laughs> wow, time really does fly. Wow, yeah. that—that's how long ago you guys started that. I remember when you started the institute, and yeah, yeah
3: that's exactly it. Yeah. Very <laughs> exciting.
1: Well, today I definitely want to discuss our uh, our mutual interest in the neuroscience of creativity. But I wanted to start off today's episode going back all the way back to 1989. Um, One of my favorite papers of yours in in the journal Cognition called Time-Locked Multi-Regional Retroactivation. Now we're going to have to explain and unpack what in the world that means to our general audience of listeners. But the reason why I wanted to double click on that is because I think that was a really seminal paper, I hope you agree, of modern day brain network systems uh, research on consciousness. Uh, I see that as a really seminal sort of early ideas. So could you kind of unpack a little bit uh, what that paper showed?
3: So we, we were interested in the idea that as you, as you manipulate knowledge, uh, perceptions of every kind, uh, different considerations that we make uh, on what we're perceiving, on what we're thinking about, based on those perceptions, on all of that uh, needs to be stored in some way. And, uh, and, and the storage, in all no likelihood... Proceeds by uh, the by uh, creating arrangements uh, of memories of traces of all of those events uh, near the places in the brain where they are formed to begin with. So we have a number of portals uh, into into our brain that largely come out of the dominant perceptual systems, particularly, of course, the visual and the auditory, which Clearly dominate uh, in most individuals, uh, and, and then all the other senses that we know of. And what is interesting is that those the channeling of information from the the the, the sensory uh, probes that are located in the periphery of our body, also the periphery of our nervous system, uh, and the the central part of the nervous system, uh, they they all land in different parts of the brain, which is, of course, predictable because we, we have a, a channel that goes, for example, from our eyes to a particular region of the, 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 the cortex, which happens to be visual cortex. Uh, and then the place where the things that you're hearing right now, or that I'm hearing of uh, my own voice, uh, they land in another place. And then out of those hubs where information uh, is, is being sent to, you have the possibility of creating a sort of encircling where you you have not only the immediate processing of what is being channeled at the moment. In this case, for example, I'm looking at your face in your bookcase behind you. Uh, you are listening to my voice and probably looking at whatever I have behind me. And so, there's that early sensory processing, but then all around, there structures that can actually take apart the information that is coming in and provide storage for that information. Sometimes in a piecemeal form, sometimes in a in a whole, uh, holistic form. So you you have the possibility of creating memories for uh, what is being processed right now, uh, and then depending on how important. Those things are for your life. They may stay on as permanent memories and be transformed, or they may be just disposed of in the course of of life. And then what what is interesting, too, is that most of the time, our, um, our perceptions are not occurring in one modality only. So, for example, right now, there is a visual perception that we're both having, an auditory perception, but also, lo and behold, we have the perception, quote unquote, of what is happening in our own body. For example, if all of a sudden you would be, you could be feeling hungry or thirsty, or you could have pain somewhere, that would be perceived as well, except that that would be arranged in a different kind of system. There is a cortical component to it, too, too as well. but By and large, it doesn't happen uh, in the cortex. The most important parts, they happen in the brainstem, they happen in the spinal cord. So you can have all of this fabrication of traces of things that are happening to you inside your body and around you. They go to specific points in the nervous system, not in one. It's very interesting as a parenthesis that very often, People that don't know anything about the brain or, or about the mind, in, uh, studied in detail, uh, can perfectly well believe that all of this is going into one great big tank, one great big sink, and is all put together. But it isn't. It's all separated at birth. It's all separated and goes into different points. And those different points where it occurs, they already are sign of a convergence of signals And then from there, they can go to another set of stations where further integration of the signals is done. Uh, and by, again, a process of convergence of signaling, a little bit of a pyramid going into a point. And then eventually you can, you can have combinations of those different pyramids, of those different hooking points and create something that is much larger. Uh, and that really, uh, that's the great picture that uh, I had for the, the convergence from multiple regions. And then what is interesting is that eventually you can have a combination of facts. For example, uh, right now I'm talking to you. I have my perception of you. I know that I'm talking to you about this particular process, which is really a process of learning and uh, categorization and memory making. But I also know that I just talked to my assistant, and we talked about a couple of specific things that I need to get done as soon as I'm done talking to you. And I'm also looking at a, a page from Corriere della Sera. That's the Italian newspaper, uh, where there is a review of my new book. Uh, and, uh, Was it good? Was it positive? It's very good. It's lovely. How yeah, <laughs> oh, it says, uh, it's a lovely title, Body and Feeling, The Romance of Damasio. <laughs> nice. I love it. I
1: love it. You can't get better than that, you know, from
3: that. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's done by, actually, by a major, a major Italian uh, biologist. Anyway, so all of this stuff is being integrated. And what is interesting is that if uh, next week you call me and you remind me of this session we're having, I could perfectly well remember not only parts of this conversation, but part of what I just told you about that particular review that happens to be on my desk. So uh, uh, things have a way of being integrated by the time at which they're occurring, but also by the, the happenstance of being here at the right moment. And so things that are not linked uh, will be linked because at that time, in this case, the time in which I am talking to you, my eyes also fell on that page that was here on my desk, actually just behind you. Anyway, so that, that's what I had in mind. And it's, uh, it has proven uh, helpful to explain Um, problems of memory, as well as making normal memory, because we know that when you can damage one part of the system, you don't lose memory across the board, you lose certain specific memories, and memories of certain kinds, for example, that may be more related to the visual system than to another. Anyway, very complicated answer for, for a very complicated subject.
1: Yeah, it's a very complicated paper. (laughs) You know, yeah. <laughs> but, but the reason why I bring this up is because I think it's extraordinary. It was a theoretical paper, and it seems to have really a modern-day work, which is really focused on systems uh, yeah. level and, and, and brain networks. has really bor- borne out a lot of those ideas, if not all yeah. of those ideas. So I think it's kudos to you. <laughs> kudos to you. Thank you very um, much. There's a sentence in that paper that I wanted to link to your more modern work, and um, let me just read this. You write, meaning is reached by time-locked multi-regional retroactivation of widespread fragment records. Say that 10 times really quickly. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Only the latter records can become contents of consciousness. I found that a very fascinating two sentences for a number of reasons. One, uh, there's a, there does seem to be something unique about humans or uniquely developed about humans in terms of our meaning-making uh, facilities. And I'd love to kind of get into what is the neural machinery and uh, psychological processes yeah. that allow us to do that and why turtles can't do that, for instance. Second of all, th- that second sentence, only the latter records can become contents of consciousness. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit because you go through a lot in your new book on the distinction, the crucial distinction between mind and consciousness. And so I'm linking the distinction of mind and consciousness, which you make so clearly now, with that very uh, complicated sentence that I just read from your 1989 paper. I hope you're you're okay with that linkage I made. I think it makes sense in my head.
3: I think it makes it, it makes perfect sense. And your uh, uh, let's actually start with the with the, the the new um uh, the, the things that pertain to the to the new book because that may help right. unpack the, the older sentence um and what i'm trying to do there that distinction between mind and consciousness is critical for a variety of reasons uh, first by and large people confuse the two and you know it's, it's as if um creatures that are minded be necessarily conscious and the two things will go together and could be interchangeable. And that's not the case. Uh, the same, uh, actually, in, in a, our conversation yesterday, in by in, in, in email, uh, you, you mentioned something about your uh, interests in, in covert processing, in things that are not, in fact, in the mind, that have to do with, a, with an intelligence that is capable but is not minded. And these are all different parts of this great big thing that we call our conscious minds, uh, and that include a lot of unconscious conscious process. So uh, I, if you take uh, simple creatures, uh, um, I wouldn't start with turtles, but I would start with something even simpler, like bacteria, or a variety of uh, creatures with only a few cells and a few nucleated cells. Uh, those creatures have no nervous system uh, to begin with, and yet they are intelligent and capable within the niche of, of universe in which they operate, and they can perfectly well uh, detect certain the presence or absence of something, which is really a form of perception, quote unquote, not a perception like we have with detailed. Imaging. It's like sensing. They're very good. Yeah. Yeah. Detecting and sensing are uh, good words for that, except that very often they, they connote other things in the mind of people and they they can add to the confusion. But anyway, they can detect sense stuff and they can, with the machinery that they have, respond in a certain way that is consonant with what they detected. Now that is an intelligent thing to do. There's no question that it is adaptive and intelligent and it is protecting them because they may detect something that they need such as, for example, food, a food particle or they may detect something that is potentially harmful and that's good because it's going to protect their body and to allow them to live as long as their machinery is meant for it to live genetically speaking. Now, So that is intelligent, but not minded, and not conscious. Now, when you turn to what we do at the other end, and what many other creatures do in between, uh, we have not only the capacity to detect, to sense stuff, but then we also have the capacity to represent what we detected, and also represent ourselves as uh, um, victims of the detection, and we have the capacity to know that all of that relates to our unique organism. So these three tiers uh, are very, very important to separate. And unfortunately, in the minds of most people, this is one great big salad. And what I'm trying to do, if you ask me what is the most important thing that I think I'm doing right now, in addition to explaining stuff that I'm passionate about, such as how you get to have a feeling, is actually insisting on the separation. Mm. So you have a mind when you are capable of representing something that you detected. And fortunately for us, we have the capacity to represent tons of things, depending on the different sensory channels. We have things outside of our bodies and inside of then we, we we have an intelligence provided we are capable of responding to things that are in our environment, but not necessarily representing them. And then we are conscious when we connect the thing that we are mindful of with our own organism. The beauty of consciousness is that <clears throat> when you have When when you have, um, for example, I'm looking at you. I know that it's me looking at you. Why do I know that? Well, that's exactly the, the problem of consciousness. The image that you are helping generate in my brain is activating a variety of systems that are in my brain and body and that connect the two indelibly and in such a way that I have no doubt that it's me talking to you, Scott. There's no question. That is what consciousness is about. It's about creating the the not disputable fact that I am doing my perceptions and you are doing your perceptions, and the and the two channels of operation are then I mean, the two kinds of operation are of the same type, but they are occurring in different organs.
0: Join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. Emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry, as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Davlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Yeah, for sure. And this is a really unique uh, aspect of your theory of consciousness, which not everyone in the field has this definition of consciousness. You know, there's panpsychism is really hot right now, right? Panpsychic people, can I say that, Panpsychic people, they, they wouldn't say that you have to have that criteria of the organism uh, being able to identify it with itself in order for it to be conscious. And this makes your work very unique and very influential that you, you really are arguing that this is a very important distinction. A lot of people in the field do not make this distinction. You know, we should make yeah. that
3: clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that, that if you don't make the, those, those distinctions, I think you actually end up in the place that led to panpsychism. I think there is a, a very good reason why panpsychism at the moment is um, is popular, and that is an escape. Uh, people that have uh, uh, come up against the wall uh, of consciousness and that talk about such things as the hard problem or the impossible problem uh, are, are really obstructed in their view of what can be. And as a result, um, almost anything goes, but panpsychism is helpful because, well, you know, maybe the reason why you can't explain it easily, uh, is because it's, it's everywhere. It's something that's not inside us. It's really something that we capture from what's around us, which I, I find, uh, first, no evidence for. And second, no way of, um, testing no way of um, doing an experiment that would cope with that
1: it's like string theory
3: <laughs> it's like string theory in physics but, but I, I think it I, I can understand I have sympathy for people that feel cornered and not uh, and not uh, uh, capable of, of explaining it but I am uh, sympathy is one thing I'm I'm not in that camp and there's one thing that, let me add because that uh, you know we, we really, through your question, we sort of got to the top of the problem. I know, I know, uh, I know.
0: Yeah.
3: Very, very, very quickly. But one thing that is uh, extremely important for me is this. Most of the things, probably everything that you read about consciousness, or for that matter, about mind, um, always talks about the brain alone. You know, people say we need to to find out how the brain um, creates consciousness. Excuse me? Why just the brain? Why this insistence on the fact that the nervous system and the nervous system alone is the creator of these things? I dispute that. I don't think it is. But you don't, you don't need to go to the, to the surround spirits to find it. It's in your own body. The logical march here is from creatures that are alive have bodies, but don't have nervous systems to creatures that eventually are alive, have bodies and have nervous systems. And minds and consciousness are ultimately the product of a particular relationship between the the living organism's body and the nervous system in that body. It's not that the nervous system is plucked and put in this inside our bodies particularly inside our skull, and charged with creating minds and creating consciousness. Not at all. I mean, of course, you cannot have minds and consciousness without a nervous system. But the nervous system is there as a partner in the process that can lead to better life regulation. The nervous system is a servant of homeostasis, the same way that the body in general is a possessor of homeostatic Operations that will allow that organism, that that living thing to continue for an allotted amount of time.
1: Well, it sounds like there are implications there for those who uh, argue we might be able to upload our brain someday and continue our consciousness. It sounds like you're saying, no, that's not going to be possible because the brain is not only
3: conscious, you know, consciousness is not only in the brain, right? Exactly. So, consciousness, by when you analyze what it really means, to be conscious, when you come back to the thought that I advanced for you, which is that it's about knowing that I am here in my body, in this life, and that the things that I have in my mind, the representations I have, do not belong somewhere else, do not belong in another organ. They're mine. How do I know that they're mine? Well, they know that they're mine because my nervous system is in constant interaction with the organism in which it is located, and without which it could not live. It's not. Yeah,
1: I totally get it. And I want to, uh, I just want to just, um, for people who are not as cognitive scientists, they're <laughs> maybe listening to some of our conversation, a lot of technical terms we're throwing around. But it, one implication I see from a lot of this as well, with the uploading of the brain, is that we may be able to upload and replicate a mind, but not consciousness. I mean, not, we might not even be able to do the mind, but it seems like at the very best, maybe what we can do is just replicate Scott Barry Kaufman's mind, but I'm never going to be able to identify it with the four- Ex- It could just be sitting in a vat of zero and ones.
3: <laughs> you got it, and you got it right, and that's exactly it. And that's, of course, uh, we don't need to go there, but that's exactly one of the problems of artificial intelligence right now, yeah, yeah. is that you can, with our current capabilities, we can have something like like the contents of your mind in an artificial non living creature. If you're going to make it conscious, that's another story. And for that, you know, it's, it's almost an absurdity to think it could be conscious if it's not living, because you know, the entire thing, of, the entire notion of consciousness is around Now you can have simulacra of consciousness. And I have no problem with that. In fact, we. Uh, I have a paper that you probably you may know about it's the paper is in nature machine intelligence uh, on whether on how you make this linkage between between a robot and a, a real body uh, with minds and conscious capabilities and it is a it's an interesting thing to, to discuss.
1: It's, it, well, that, that is very interesting, and we are shooting towards the top. I inter- I totally get we haven't gone through all the steps yet and of what is feeling. What is, I have a million other questions that we were supposed to talk about along the way before we get here. But this is really interesting. So while we're here for a second, the idea of can we ever make uh, feeling machines... Um, since since we're kind of talking about that right now, I would like to link that to the idea of why is feeling so essential to consciousness in your model, and how do you even define feeling? And then and then why not? Let's have fun. Let's link that to whether or not we'll be able to create feeling machines as an implication of that.
3: Okay, very good. Well, so uh, just a little uh, um, teaching point for people that are sort of caught in the middle of these terms like feeling and emotion very often when people think feeling or hear the word feeling they immediately portray an emotion mm. and um, and of course that's the beginning of disaster because the two things are in fact uh, associated one of the time but plenty for plenty of the time they're not mm. so and we could start by saying this what came first feelings or emotions and in all likelihood feelings did because Feelings are, in fact, uh, mental expressions of certain states of the organism to begin with. And to begin with and to end with, because when you have an emotional feeling, you are also dealing with a state of your organism. But let's start with feelings the way they likely began in the history of life. And the feelings that must have been the first, were what I call homeostatic feelings. And they, they occurred in creatures with nervous systems. That's very important to realize. And by the way, once you, once you remember the strong link that I have between feelings and consciousness, you again have this link between feeling and consciousness and nervous systems. And it doesn't make any sense to talk about it. If there are no nervous systems, you don't need any feelings. If you don't have, Nervous systems. Anyway, so, the, the, what feeling, those homeostatic feelings first give in an organism that is multicellular and has nervous systems is a sense, actually a mental representation, of something important that is happening in that body. Such as, for example, being hungry, or being thirsty, mm. or having pain, or feeling damn good. Those are the fundamental I mean, aesthetic feelings. Desire is too, but we don't need to go there. Too early in the morning for desire. Too early. Um, it's Valentine's Day today. Wait, hold on. Hold on. We're talking today on Valentine's <laughs> Day,
1: folks, even though we're going to release this later, just so people know. <laughs> it's relevant. <laughs> go on. Yeah.
3: Okay. So, um, what what is hunger telling you? Mm. You yeah. and only you. <laughs> it's telling you that there's. It's so a good time to have sources of energy brought into your body, and that's lacking. And if you're thirsty, it's telling you something, and by the way, totally conscious right there and then, that's where consciousness first emerges. It's telling you in no uncertain terms, this is lacking, you need this. And of course, it's not telling you in so many words, it doesn't use words, it, does, it uses the language of feeling, with its spontaneous, natural, occurring consciousness. And that's why I like to say that feelings were the inaugural events of consciousness. One fine day, after lots of uh, variations on, on the theme of organism regulation, this magic potion occurred within living organisms with nervous systems, and that was feeling. And it is so successful, it is so good at telling you immediately drink, eat, uh, uh recoil from an attack, um, do something because you're having pain and it's probably gonna kill you. Do something to prevent it or avoid it, or go to the doctor. Uh, all of those things were extremely informational. They were giving you there and then useful information to maintain your life. There's no way you could have preceded life in a complicated organism uh, with multicellular and with nervous system if you did not have that information. In other words, you went rapidly, from 500 million years ago, you went rapidly from having organisms that unless they were lucky, they would die, to organisms that even if they were not like lucky, they had enough information to do something useful about their life and to reduce the risk of death. And that's this makes perfect sense from an evolutionary um, perspective, and that's where I think consciousness began, at the level of feeling. Now, because you wanted me to say things about feeling for your uh, listeners, then I will also say that the confusion with emotion is a problem because. What developed in living creatures as emotions, which don't develop with humans, developed before, of course, are theatricals. They're certain kinds of expression that you can have in the body and in the face, once you have a face that is, that is manipulable with different muscle groups. It's certain kinds of expressions that register something that is happening to you. Uh, something that is in the environment, some reaction that you have to others. Examples, uh, a feeling, of, uh, uh, um, um, an emotion of fear when you are recoiling from something that potentially may attack you, and which is accompanied by a feeling of fear. So this is where things get extremely complicated yeah. and people really need to think a little bit because then it's clear as daylight when you are having the emotion of fear your eyes bulge you're, you you pull back uh and uh, and lo and behold your body changed and because your body changed those changes are what produce the feeling of fear but the emotion itself is a set of actions by the way the word emotion etymologically is perfect it's about the Latin a e motere, it's yeah. to move to the outside mm-hmm. you you have it's actor studio you know you're just doing things and by the way if you have uh, anger you do the same thing you know it's it's a different sort of theatricals but it's again represented in your in your body and if you are uh, um, terribly uh, if you want to seduce somebody uh, you, you also do the corresponding theatricals and they also are felt because they are represented internally with your nervous system, and and, and they, they can end up being a feeling which is subjective. Emotions by themselves are not subjective. Emotions by themselves are directed to the outside.
1: Yeah, so there's something I'm trying to understand about in terms of the chicken and egg thing here. The way you described it, it was like emotions come first and then it influences your feelings. But you had said prior that through the course of human evolution, feelings probably came first.
3: Exactly. So uh, that's that's where you need to distinguish between the homeostatic and the emotional in in a proper sense. So the the, the things that came first were the homeostatic feelings. And probably the, the creatures that had homeostatic feelings, if I would have to guess, and I wouldn't bet anything on it, but if I would have to guess, they did not have emotions. They had feelings because they were, they were having representations, mental representations of the state of the body, their bodies. And that was the, 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 the critical issue here. Mm-hmm. And that's why this has a logic, which is the logic of life and the logic of survival. It, 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 that came first because it was so important for that organism. When you start having emotions, it's at a point in which you have already some complex interactions with other beings. And those other beings can cross you and you get angry, or they can do something, or the environment can do something that threatens you and you get fear and so forth. So it's a different stage and it's actually more, it reflects a greater complexity of the organism, although in the end they don't need to be more complex as phenomena. But, but they're there reflecting something else. Uh, and But all of this can end up felt. And felt simply means that you automatically know it's in you. It's in your organism. And that also means that you are automatically conscious. The two things have to go together.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I hear what you're saying. I'm just trying to think this through in my own personal life. Because, my gosh, you're right. We are such social humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the humans are such social beings, I should say. And there is a performative aspect to emotions, which I'm now thinking in my head. Like, am I ever when I'm just having like an imagination of things, do I ever recoil in fear in the same way physically on the outside I would look like if I was with another person and we were both recounting the experience. I'm trying to do the experiment in my head to verify what you're saying scientifically. Um, and it's, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> I never really thought about that really. Yeah, so um, we may have uh, feelings uh, when we're lost in our own thoughts and when we're in touch with our own organism, so to speak but there is something about emotions that is, um, is, is seems like deeply social
3: yeah. and yeah it's fascinating you're right oh i think it's it's absolutely social uh, and I, I think that um, you know it's part of uh, for example you as you are communicating with me yeah. uh, your 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 face has been animated now several times yeah. by uh, for example a smile true you, 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 you smile when you were Wondering if what I was saying was probably right. And you smile in, in consonants. But that is, I don't think it's theatricals in the sense that it was totally deliberated by you. It's probably part of your repertoire, repertoire. of emotional, uh, of emotional <clears throat> phenomena when you communicate with others because you have been doing it all your life and you have adjusted yourself to do it the same way that I'm sure I've done all sorts of things that would be of, of, of that kind. Or, for example, the way your face has, on a couple of times already, uh, manifested doubt in relation to what I was saying, or, or being puzzled, uh, but puzzled in a way that was probably not positive, which is perfectly fine. But you will register, <laughs> or you, what you're doing right now, you know, with your, you know, the, the fact that I said, it's perfectly fine, you reacted with laughter. And I don't exactly, but 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 that is—it's all—it's part of the social interaction. You're you're doing it along with me in the social interaction, uh, and this has very little to do with being hungry or being thirsty or being in pain. Uh, you know, those are different things. Those are spontaneously occurring in relation to what your nervous system is getting in an interaction with its own body mm-hmm. or i'd like to say the opposite it's the, the organism's own nervous system because that's the way that the, that's the way it is and it is it's it's, it's com- completely different but by the way <clears throat> one thing so that in case we end up because this is so interesting and we're going in so many directions so that I don't forget. There's something fundamentally different about the perception of our body by our nervous system, uh, and the perception of the outside world. So for example, right now, I'm perceiving you, and I can look out and perceive the, you know, the Monica mountains. There's no way that the I can go interactively with the Santa Monica Mountains or with you at the level of the perceptual object. But with my body, that happens. So if my body sends a signal from one particular point, say, for example, I, I, I'm actually a having pain in the neck. Sorry to, to to say, you're not a pain. in the neck. Anyway, and that's because I was moving books uh, yesterday and the day before, and one of the times, I carried too many books in one go, and I twisted uh, muscles, and I have a pain. Mm. What is interesting is that the, the, there's there's signals that are coming from the muscles, that the muscle fibers that have been disrupted and probably torn, and they're going into the, the spinal cord, in this case, the brainstem, uh, and then the, the central nervous system. Uh, the, the, it can go all the way up to to the to, to the cortex, although in many cases it doesn't need to. Okay. What is interesting is that the signals come in and literally ascend in the nervous system, but the nervous system has the possibility to respond to the origin of the perception. So we have a crosstalk between our body. It's, it's non-neural components and the nervous system. The, ne- the non-neural components of the body talk to the nervous system. The nervous system talks back. One thing that it does is, that you, you experience constantly has to do with pain or has to do with itch. For example, if you have an itch in your skin, skin is dry. It's itchy. Well, it's itchy for a little bit. You can. Uh, scratch it a bit, and it will go. But then it will come back. But then after a while, even if you don't do anything about it, it will go. And it will go because the central nervous system is sending signals back to that place doing, at the local level, uh, chemical corrections of the environment so that the thing gets adjusted. So it's never the case that you have a body here and a nervous system here like I have my brain here, and you on the screen. You There's no way that screen and you are going to do anything to my nervous system mm-hmm. directly. Whereas in the case of interception, that happens all the time. So that's another fundamental way, which by the way has been completely neglected by anybody that is doing theory on consciousness with extremely rare exceptions. There's no way that uh, uh, that you can understand this phenomenon without acknowledging that interception, that is the perception of the interior, quote unquote, is different in its design, in its operation from the perception of the outside world. These are two things that are completely different. Now, of course, in our, in our high functioning minds and, and brains, it all works together very well, yet they are different. And that's, those It's those differences that give you an entry into problems like consciousness and that you can explore and exploit to your advantage.
1: For sure i mean if you're if you're a psychopath you know you can absolutely there's a real huge distinction between feelings and emotions and if you're an actor there's a huge distinction but it seems like in most people's everyday lives there there's a great feedback loop between the two that makes it more genuine so to speak in my, in my view there seems to be something different between the way i'm responding to you socially today and an actor would respond to you because right. I, I am feeling things that are correlated at a p less than 0.05 level with the, the expression on my face. So it's not complete
3: random. Do you know what uh, I mean? Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, 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 the connection to, to acting is only useful to give to, to bring home the, the, the point that certain things can be fabricated at the level of actions because they have to begin with actions. And of course, what we call a great actor is someone that can do those expressions so well that it looks spontaneous and real, as opposed to uh, being fabricated by technique. Oh, you know what? I would even go one step
1: further and say probably the best actors are those that have a really good congruence between a, a fabricated emotion and then the genuine experience. Um, that- I
3: totally, I totally agree, and I think, and, and that actually. Uh, speaks to the the distinctions, for example, uh, actor studio actors and non actor studio actors have that kind of difference. They're good. It's such a talent. It's so amazing. I mean, I, obviously,
1: <laughs> you can you learn that, but I do think that there's a certain talent component in there as well. And that's a fascinating question: is what yeah. is that talent component? Yeah. You know, it makes you go to that. I love thinking about the aberrations or the the outliers to lots of this kind of stuff. You know, when we start yeah. thinking about things like schizophrenia you know, and the way that those, that mind is, uh, the, the different connect, altered brain network connections in people mm-hmm. with schizophrenia. Would you say that when they're having a psychotic episode, uh, that they're not, let's say they're having a disassociative episode where they're not identifying their contents of their mind with themselves. Would you argue that in those states, schizophrenic patients are not conscious
3: uh, by your definition? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I never never argue that. No, I think they are conscious. Okay. Because there is a... Uh, there, there's something, Scott, something I want to tell you because you're interested in this and also to your listeners. There's something very beautiful about feelings, whatever they are. There's the continuity. Homesthetic feelings have a continuity. That's something that, uh, you know... Uh, a while ago, somebody said, oh, so you talk about these homeostatic feelings, and you say that homeostatic feelings are the reason why you're conscious, and, and that you require them to be conscious spontaneously, and so forth. And then, But since I'm not hungry all the time, and I'm not horny all the time, and I'm not <laughs> thirsty all the time, then what happens? that I become unconscious in between my hunger and thirst episodes? And I say, no, you're, you're, you're constantly feeling you have this continuous feeling of being alive i've called it several times a feeling of existence the feeling of being alive it's if you if you meditate a little bit or if you just be quiet you realize, you realize that there's something humming in you which is being alive mm-hmm. and yeah. which by the way if you were not be alive you would you would not notice it yeah.
1: uh, and, oh, do you know so, that for sure
3: are you sure do we know that for sure, hundred <laughs> percent? No, I don't. I, do, I, That's I don't. That's metaphysical. That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suspect strongly. Uh, anyway, so th- th- this feeling of continuity is extremely important. So when when you, uh, I have to tell you that I've not, I've thought about uh, feelings in psychiatric conditions. Mm. I've on purpose sort of avoided thinking about feelings in schizophrenia. Um but I've thought about them in depression, for example, mm-hmm. and I, I think there's always a continuity, a feeling of existence. It's there and, and it's sort of humming along because you are in this interaction between the nervous system and the and 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 the body. so it, it's inevitable. So you could say that um the other feelings, say feelings of hunger or thirst and so forth, are sort of if you plot it, as as a, a running graph are things that come, the crest, on top of that humming up and down feeling that is constantly there on your monitor. That is the, the feeling of life, the feeling of existence.
1: But as I understand your theory, feeling is a necessary but not sufficient condition for consciousness. In order for consciousness to occur, there needs to be this real coordinated operation of being, feeling, and knowing. And it does seem like in certain schizophrenic patients, the knowing part is not there. So that's why I ask you the very pointed question. According to your definition, it seems like you would say that they're not conscious, even though they're feeling.
3: No, but I I think that the, the, the way in which you're taking that combination of being, feeling, and knowing... Is not as literal uh, as, as that. So, of course, I mean, what are the conditions? You have to have a living organism. You have to have an organism that has a nervous system. You have the possibility of interactions of the nervous system and the rest of the body. Mm. And then you have uh, the, the 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 sort of bubbling bubbling up um, uh, sense, which is a feeling that there is life ticking in there. Uh, the knowing um, is a, a very interesting question. Do you need to be, in addition to it being there spontaneously, no questions asked, do we need to have a reflection on it? I don't think so. And I think that what is failing in schizophrenia is at the level of a reflection on what is happening in that organism. B- but, BA-10. <laughs> is that? B A ten, yeah. So, but uh, right. so the then the yeah. the spontaneous feeling of existence is still there. It it, 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 it doesn't go away. Um, but I, it, it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm not letting this go. <laughs> I'm not letting this go because it is very. Inter- it brings raises a lot of interesting questions. No, no, because dissociative I, episodes. I'm going to. I'm I'm going to think very carefully about. Your question, excuse schizophrenia for you. and I would
1: send you an answer. Thank you. I, I really truly appreciate that. This is this is what a good scholarly conversation is about. So we're <laughs> modeling that right now. So wonderful, beautiful. Let's talk about creativity a little bit. You know, I it's a topic we both love, and uh, the neuroscience of creativity. I know you're very interested in complex emotions, things like the bittersweet. You know, my yeah. friend Susan Cain just wrote a whole book about this emotion, bittersweet. But I know that you're really interested in mixed valence emotions, and I, I'm I'm absolutely enamored with that as well. What's the role of these kinds of mixed emotions and in, in helping us have more complex cognitive processes like creativity and meaning making?
3: Mm. Um, fair well, question. <laughs> yeah, um, everything is fair. Uh, the it goes in the mix. You know, creativity is such. a Extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary field to 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 look at. Um, I think that depending on, you see, it all depends on what you're working on. If you're if you're writing uh, literary sentences, or if you're uh, making uh, uh, if you're making a painting or a sculpture, they're they're very different uh, different levels of operation, different complexities, uh, and they all Take, they they all exploit this amazing high level of consciousness that we have gotten to, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why people are so confused about consciousness and why it is so difficult to bring them down to the simple fact that feelings are spontaneous events in consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because most of what people have been thinking And reading about creativity, about, sorry, about uh, consciousness has pulled them up and has taken them to not only high level consciousness, but to the consequences of high level consciousness in the form of the creative objects that are around us. So uh, nobody ever started looking at consciousness from, from the bottom up people start looking at consciousness in the extended consciousness that occurs when we have when, when we have this sort of literary sense of the universe uh, together with the, the science that has accompanied mm-hmm. it and creativity is so central to this but again it's, it sort of pushes you up where you have consequences of being conscious mm-hmm. but where the real operations, Are no longer in the domain of consciousness, but rather in the domain of knowledge and creativity, in the domain of manipulation of knowledge. Now, of course, you couldn't manipulate that knowledge if you were not conscious to begin with, if you had not uh, been so richly conscious that you gave to every little bit of knowledge that you have in your brain right now, you gave it the 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 gift of consciousness, which really means you gave it the possibility of connecting with your life. Mm. That's it. Your conscious, if, even if you're thinking you have just been listening to a particular passage of Mozart or Bach, uh, those are so incredibly complex in the way they were written or in the way they're being performed by a superb soloist and. That is only available to you if you can bring down that that thread into your body and if you can connect it to the state of your body at that point. That's when consciousness occurs. But of course, we have spent most of our lives thinking about it from the top at the level of extended consciousness. Uh, which is not even a good name. I I, I told you I I I coined it, so it's so my fair. But yeah. But, but I, I, I don't like to use extended. It's extended mind, really,
1: not consciousness. Well, I completely agree with what you just said, and it links to uh, my own work on uh, reduced latent inhibition and creativity mm-hmm. and creative achievement, uh, work I did in my dissertation where creative people tend to have this uh reduced threshold for the pre-gating mechanism for kind of allowing in some of that more sensory information and not tagging things as irrelevant this is also work that obviously like people like jordan peterson and uh, Shelley carson um Mm -hmm. did as well um so i think that's more of a bottom-up approach along the lines of what you're talking about right yeah
3: yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah
1: Yeah.
3: very good very good yes i got a very good
1: from the 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 famous antonio damasio yay you know in another area of creativity that i uh, really, I'm fascinated with which I nerd out a lot with uh, our mutual friend uh, and colleague Mary Helen Immerdino Yang is the default mode network, and I'm I'm wondering I want to hear your thoughts about the default. I just saw your emotion there on your face there
3: when I said default mode network. What What are your
1: thoughts on that and its linkage to creativity?
3: It's It's too early in the morning for default mode network.
1: <laughs> I love that.
3: Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm still half asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to
1: go there. Well, it does seem like the default mode network, which is a network of brain areas uh, in the medial surface of the prefrontal cortex, primarily, that seems to support uh, a lot of different forms of social cognition, imagination, mental time travel into the future. And as Mary Handa, Helen Helen yang has talked about its connection to meaning making and how that could potentially be connected to creativity. Do you personally, in your own work, do you do you see that as a central hub of creativity, of the neuroscience of creativity?
3: Uh, I, I certainly see it as a, a very important component, a very important contributor. I, I don't know if I would call it the central hub, but certainly but some, something. extremely important. And, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You should talk about it. You know about it. Talk about I know it. about it. Well, the thing that
1: fascinates me about the Default Network and in relation to our conversation today is that uh, you can kind of to to be poetic about it when you're jamming in the space of your default network when you're improvising when you're just in in touch with the stream of con- your mind not necessarily consciousness but the mind right um, the stream of mind. The stream of mind, or William James, you know, called it. Yeah. He called it the stream of consciousness, but he, called it, he should have called it the stream of mind. I just realized, <laughs> I just realized that. But um, it seems like when we're jamming in the stream of our mind, um, it, great, amazing creative things come out, you know, when you're doing jazz improvisation, when you're trying to get and, in this state where you're doing poetry. So it does seem like consciousness is not, uh, consciousness can even get in the way sometimes of, of uh, creative generation.
3: It could. I, that, that, that's a perfectly, a perfectly uh, reasonable thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, interesting, maybe, interesting. maybe you, uh, it, it might not be bad at certain points to sort of separate yourself from that hook, from that, from, from the fangs of consciousness. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's exactly, uh, you know, flights of uh, poetic fancy are exactly moments in which you you make that link more tenuous. How about that?
1: Yeah, and uh, obviously we can't stay in that state all the time, 24-7. Oh, no, no.
3: It wouldn't be good for... No, it it wouldn't be. See, uh, that's another interesting correlate, because that it would move you away from the the, the really life-saving consequences of being conscious, which basically have to do with with house management, you know, consciousness is very simple. So it's all about keeping keeping the thing going as well as possible. And then yeah. there's the, the, the flights of fancy that's in another in another sphere. Another sphere. But, yeah. I, I can I have a question? Before, you know, I you know I will have to go very very soon. So can I ask you a question? Of course, of course. So, um, are you? really interested in Ben psychism. i think it's interesting theory, oh, and,
1: but i don't uh i'm i'm very skeptical i'm right. very skeptical of it yeah
3: you don't you, you, you don't buy it i'm skeptical of it
1: um, um, uh, i haven't not bought it yet uh, i haven't bought it yet either <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i'm still thinking about whether i should buy it but um yeah yeah i'm skeptical but some of my closest friends you know like um, Annika Harris in her own right she wrote a book on consciousness she loves it she loves it <laughs> Philip Goff Philip Goff loves it he'll tell he was on my podcast he was extolling the merits of it you know
3: I know I know I know I know I know there, 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 there are people that are very much uh, like us people that, that mm. can think of that way like there's there's nothing wrong with it other than being wrong <laughs> I mean, there, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with <laughs> 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 there's wrong, if wrong with wrong probably. If you fall for it, forever. Yeah, but. Well, I will say,
1: uh, sort of ending here today. I, I really do see your the logic of what you've outlined and why consciousness seems to require the coordinated effort of these three uh, we call them systems in a way these three elements of 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 the body that uh, interacting um, with each other in very unique ways and but the, this this element that the nervous system is an important part of it does have deep implications we never answered the machine question so maybe we should end on that one because we had that threads that's a thread that's still open can we ever have feeling machines um, and you have argued in your book, a new generation of feeling machines can probably become efficacious assistance to really feeling humans. As hybrids of natural and artificial creatures, no less important, this new generation of machines would constitute a unique laboratory for the investigation of human behavior and mind in a variety of actual realistic settings. So that's exciting uh, coming down the pipeline when we can start to meld uh, uh, fast computer processors with the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So we can get the coordinated effort of the elements you talk about in a way that has like a super duper hyped up uh, processing capability. That could produce some interesting
3: forms of consciousness, right? Absolutely, and you would have to have some kind of of, of body uh, mm. aspect to it. In other words, you need you will need to mimic certain properties of a living organism in order to get to it with any hope of um, success. Mm. And right now we don't have that, but I, I think it's perfectly possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Antonio,
1: oh my man, thank you so much for this chat today. It really was delightful to talk to you. We should keep up the, the, the nerdy conversation.
3: Very good. Uh, any, any, time. I enjoyed talking to you. It Beautiful. was fun. It was so much okay. fun. Best thank of luck with your book.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
0: iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.